Well, guess what? Some of the world's smartest people are pseudonymous Twitter accounts or anonymous commenters. So people's brains being scrambled by forums in, 10 years ago or by Twitter right now or maybe Clubhouse if you're being you know, a little bit more verbal IQ oriented, it's like a blessing and a curse. The curse is the algorithm is what decides what you'll talk about next. You'll be focused on the discourse. If you look at all of my public material, it kind of ignores the discourse. I don't care where the discourse is going. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Other Life Podcast. I'm here today with Samo Berlia, and Samo is the founder of a consultancy called Bismarck Analysis, but he's most interesting to me as a theorist and a researcher who has carved out a very fascinating and I think quite impressive niche for himself as an independent intellectual. So I wanted to get Sam on the podcast in part because he's actually been requested a few times. So I think many of you out there in my audience know of Samo and were quite interested to hear me talk to him. But also I was interested in getting to know Samo a bit better because first of all, I want to know more about his ideas and I want to unpack some of his, his larger theoretical conceptions that he's working quite hard on right now. So we'll unpack some of that. But I'm also quite intrigued to look a little bit under the hood of his larger operation because... I know there's a lot of us out there right now, a lot of people in my community and my audience who are finding their own ways to, con to, to conduct serious professional level intellectual work, but outside of institutions. And I see Samo as someone who's doing this very well and, and quite impressively with his, own, with his own path right now. Before we get to this week's episode, just a really, really quick word from our sponsor. That's right. We now have our first sponsor, and that's because it's a company I built myself, actually. I've been working on it for more than a year now. And it really works. So I really want to start telling people about it. IndieThinkers.org is a private community designed specifically for independent intellectuals. That is pretty much anyone doing serious long-term intellectual work, but outside of institutions and on the internet instead. It's never been easier to do meaningful work outside of institutions, but there are still major challenges. Like maybe you just don't know other people working on serious projects. Or maybe you struggle to stay confident and motivated, so it's hard to put in the hours every week. You know, maybe you need substantive feedback on your work, or maybe you need strategic feedback on how to build your platform on the internet, these kinds of things. So an Indie Thinkers membership solves these problems with a few key features. There's a private forum to discuss ideas and get feedback on your work, or also to find collaborators. We do three work sessions every week where we meet on Zoom just to work privately on our projects. This is pretty much immediately guaranteed to increase your output, and pretty much everyone swears that it does. So we also do monthly conferences where we actually share and discuss and present our work and give and get feedback on it. A little bit of substantive feedback, but also some strategic feedback on next steps, and we kind of think those things we think those things through together. Finally, there's a content library that's filled with useful audio, video, and text documents, where it's basically all about giving you the practical instructional materials that you need to do this stuff better. So we do live Q and A's with successful indie thinkers who we bring into the community just to ask them questions and pick their their brain privately about how they've done what they've done and you know tips and and tricks that they want to share with us to help us but we also have videos and screencasts and things like that that show you how to do different things like whether it's how to build a blog or how to automate your workflows or how to plan a book project that kind of stuff and and much more so indie thinkers is not cheap and it's really not for everyone i want to stress it's really only for people working on serious long-term creative or intellectual projects outside of the normal institutional tracks which usually provide built-in support structures. Like if you're a professor, there are 
already things built in that enable you and empower you to do this kind of work sustainably over time. But if you're working on the internet, you don't have those institutions, right? So I've designed this to pretty much be everything you need to do that kind of work over the long term on the internet. And so if that describes you and your goals, then I definitely would personally encourage you to request an invitation. I wouldn't be sharing it if I didn't believe in it. You can do that at indiethinkers.org. And uh, when you request an invitation, I'll see it. And if I think you're a good fit, I'll just uh, invite you to, to join us. So that's it. It's just indiethinkers.org. All right. That's all I got, folks. Now onto the podcast. So first of all, just want to uh, thank you, Samo, for coming on. How are you doing today? Uh, it's an excellent day here in, uh, in Slovenia. Justin, thank you for having me on the show. I've been looking forward to this. You, I believe, came from Europe to Silicon Valley in around 2014, where you pretty quickly met some, I think, fairly influential people, probably some wealthy people. And this, as I understand it, kind of gave you the social context for creating what is now a successful research consultancy called Bismarck Analysis. And I, if, if it's okay with you, I kind of want to start here to give people a sense of, you know, your story and, and immediately start unpacking, you know, how were you able to do this, right? So first of all, the, the first question that comes to my mind is, you told me at one point that, you know, it's not too hard to meet powerful people. The hard part is having something to say to them. I, I found that a very interesting comment, and I think I know exactly what you mean, but I'm curious in your case, tell us, when you went, first went to Silicon Valley, what did you have to say to people? Well, first off, I wanted to talk about them. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about them. I wanted to talk about their life, um, their success, and also what they had seen in the world. Uh, I was very interested in Western elites. That was kind of the stage of my research project. And you know, you're never going to find a good anthropology paper on Western elites. So your only real option, your only real recourse is to go talk to them, right? Over the years, I ended up going to places like Davos, etc. But Silicon Valley was my first beachhead, right? Um, it seemed to me, obviously, I should talk to them. And everyone likes to be flattered. And interest is the most sincere type of flattery, honestly. It, um, it really is. So um, showing up with some empathy for the powerful is also quite unusual. Now, in addition to this, what I did, what I did think uh, at the time and what I already brought, turned out I correctly thought at the time, um, was a little bit of a broader perspective, right? I ended up having very interesting conversations on history, which I wouldn't have predicted but just very, very quickly through the course of a conversation from discussing like contemporary elites, contemporary politics, contemporary technology, people would ask me, ah, Samo, well, why is this surprising? And then I'd have to answer with a concrete example of a society that just did things very, very differently. Sometimes the very recent past as well. Um, you know, I would sit there and I would interrogate the concept of, you know, creative destruction. And I would ask them, you know, maybe the fact that we have to do so much disrupting is itself a sign that we live in a relatively like rigid, stagnant society because you have to turn everything on its head in order to get anything done at all. Like you really shouldn't need to be in a multi-front PR, legal, uh, human, human resources war just to release, you know, just to release a new, a new social media app. It really shouldn't be that hard. It's somehow it is. I see. Okay. So there's a, a few things you said there that I think are worth pausing on. One interesting comment you kind of snuck in there very, very quickly was the, your assertion that there's no 
good research literature on Western elites. That's a fascinating uh, idea. Why do you think that is? Well, I think at least contemporary Western elites, right? And I would argue, of course, there's always an inherent bias in anything that gets published is either written by someone that doesn't know what they're talking about or written by someone that's writing, you know, a hagiography of some kind, someone that's flattering, uh, that's, you know, complicit in whatever PR goals uh, exist. You know, if you imagine someone going to say, you know, the statesman of the Western world today and being like, hi, I'm an anthropologist from Yale. I've come to study how modern politics does decision making. Can I just sit into some of your meetings? I mean, at best, they're going to treat you as a clueless idiot. At worst, they're going to treat you as a spy or a journalist or someone who's going to get them in trouble. There's just no way you can even establish that initial trust uh, to actually just see what's happening, to see what the real problems are, to see what actually what problems they're trying to solve in their local politics that are often behind these decisions of immense organizations and trillions of dollars. Okay, that's fascinating. So something I'm kind of hearing from you is that when it comes to elites, influential people, wealthy people, I think a lot of people out there have a mental model where they imagine these elites to be you know, they're very, they imagine them as very admired, very in demand, very, uh, you know, too busy to, to talk with people. But kind of what you're suggesting is that, in fact, Western elites feel generally misunderstood, uh, neglected, loathed to some degree, and encountering someone who's thoughtful and intelligent and working on serious high-level intellectual problems who has some kind of realistic understanding of the actual situation that Western elites are in, you're basically saying that that is immediately quite interesting to Western elites. And, and if you have something like that, or you're working on anything that really resonates on an authentic level with these people who often feel generally neglected in a sense by, by the culture, they're quite favorable to learning from you or at least meeting with you and hearing a little bit more about whatever it is you're up to. Am I hearing that correct? Yep, that's completely correct. And, and in a way, it shouldn't be too surprising, right? I think in a way we, you know, not to let them off the hook, they certainly are in fact complicit in a lot of the problems of our era. But by default, I think we blame them for all the problems of our era, right? Like I feel like the relationship between say, like, you know, something like a ruling class and something like the citizen is always fraught. There's always a question of, well, who fears who more? And current political philosophies in the West, like they constantly suggest that, you know, if someone is sufficiently above you, they're kind of your enemy. You're supposed to be suspicious of them. You're supposed to be critical of them. You're supposed to be competitive with them, et cetera, et cetera. Now, to flip this on the other side, um, while we have this mythology within their own organizations, everyone is a yes man. Everyone wants to get on their good side. So actually, you have to come in and show both empathy and critique of their position, but it has to be an informed critique. You can't use the normal, uh, the normal Western elite critiques. If you come to them with new elite critiques that they've never heard before, that grabs their attention. It really does. It doesn't necessarily mean they immediately like you, but it does mean they'll like, you know, stand around, you know, have a conversation with you, invite you for lunch, invite you for something, you know. Right. Okay. Fascinating. So you're thinking about interesting and important puzzles relating to society and institutions. And you're doing this research, you're developing ideas that are genuine ideas you really believe in that are worth sharing with, with, with people who matter. You go to Silicon Valley and you're able to pretty quickly start having conversations with people who matter and people who are interested in your ideas. 
How does that go? How does that then become more formal relationships, whether it be in the form of, and I don't know too much about your, your operation. So, you know, you can feel free to divulge or, you know, keep private, whatever you prefer, but how does that then materialize into whether it be, I don't know if it's patronage relationships, maybe donor or grant relationships, or also kind of hired research relationships, putting you in the form of essentially a kind of private researcher for hire. How, how does, how does having ideas and developing personal relationships with people interested in those ideas, give us a sense of how that materializes into uh, kind of financially sustainable operations, however you think about those operations. Right, right. Um, well, fundamentally, I built my business in order to run a successful research program, including for the analysts that work at Bismarck. The priority often there is kind of intellectual growth, uh, you know, accumulation of this type of human capital, um, basically research progress if it can be achieved. But of course, it's also a for-profit entity. So there is a question of, well, is there research that is close enough to applicable to be something that might be profitable for clients or at least of you know supreme interest to them? So I would vaguely like classify there the, these two buckets, these two big buckets of stuff. One, research that is on specific organizations, institutions where the correct answer is useful enough for their ongoing efforts, their ongoing strategy. In that case, you actually have to know quite a bit about the client. On the other hand, is something that you could consider philanthropy, but I almost like, you know, it's it's almost like fundamental intellectual curiosity. Like things that just in an ideological sense to the person in question, they would want to hear answers. They would want to understand. Um, you can get all sorts of interesting research funded. You can get research funded on, you know, the distant history of mankind, you know, when exactly civilization arose, um, the question of in which conditions this political violence arose, which kind of straddles the border between, uh, you know, this kind of like large intellectual curiosity and something very practical, right? Obviously, you need to think about, you know, how stable is a country? How stable are the conditions in a country? You might be especially targeted if you stand out in some way. Um, so I, mean, I was saying you might get anything funded from, uh, you know, research into, you know, the distant history of mankind, research into what are the bottlenecks on technological research in the modern era, um, which Western governments are perhaps the most uh, flexible and are the likeliest to undertake serious reform or, uh, you know, stuff that's oriented towards uh, questions of nuclear war or global pandemics or any of that other stuff that starts becoming more conventionally philanthropic over time. And, you know, a lot of these people, they're, they're very alive, especially if they are in a self-made in some sense, like if they created their own fortunes, which in Silicon Valley is, is often the case, um, very intelligent, passionate about questions. And often they're just really, you know, really short on time. They're really short on people. So these are kind of the two big buckets. Um, one of them requires you to know a little bit more about the person. The other one requires you to know uh, a little bit more about the world and also make a differential case that you in particular are the correct person to solve this intellectual puzzle or at least to contribute to it substantially. Um, I can give some more examples besides, you know, uh, besides just just Bismarck. There are, you know, there's uh, this whole there's this whole movement called the effective altruist movement that arguably uh, sponsors some intellectual work, uh, that people uh, interested in artificial intelligence, like the Silicon Valley ecosystem 
in fact sponsors a whole number of such things. There's also, say, um, uh, a, a magazine called Palladium Magazine that presumably has donor backing and ends up researching some of these questions of related to political science. So I feel like right now we're at the cusp of Silicon Valley developing a good nonprofit culture, but I don't think it's there yet. So I actually think it is an uphill battle, right? Each of these examples that I listed is a little bit weird. So in my experience, the for-profit side has actually been a bit easier, right? Unless a nonprofit sector is developed in a new center of wealth, such as say, you know, New York was a new center of wealth a hundred years ago. That's why the great foundations are all based in New York, because the industrial fortunes were made there and the uh, nonprofit sector was built there. But unless a nonprofit sector is developed, you're going to have a very hard time getting compensation that allows you to live in one of these hubs. Ah, but if you can't live in one of these hubs, how can you get the social capital to fund these things? Well, you don't. So it's a little bit of a, of a catch-22. Uh, this is why on the East Coast of the United States, very often a nonprofit job is something that you get into if you're already well off. So having said all of this, for-profit is easier. It's something better understood. People, however, have a really hard time uh, pricing intellectual services of various kinds because they have difficulty evaluating um, where ideas come from, what has been decisive, what has not been decisive, especially if you're working for... Mm, a larger corporation of some kind, you know, my experiences have been that you never want to deliver a report to a committee. You want to deliver it to an individual. If you deliver a report to a committee, you have to agree with all of them, even if they disagree with each other. And if you deliver it to an individual, you might even be able to disagree with the individual. And that for intellectual integrity is unskippable, right? So what I'm saying is not all money is equally good if your goal is intellectual production, because some money will require you to compromise intellectual integrity. Absolutely. So that's very fascinating. You're giving me a lot of interesting thoughts, like especially if cryptocurrency becomes a new center of wealth, as it appears to be, is is the cryptocurrency community going to be creating its own nonprofit structures to fund disinterested intellectual work, perhaps? I'm not necessarily putting that question to you, just an example of the possibilities what you're saying might be pointing to so so i can kind of uh put that to the side for a minute one thing that you were saying that really struck me was it almost sounded like your do you go and pitch people on on paid research grants you know do you go up to to someone and say hey i think your business really needs to know more about x i have a thesis i'm pretty sure this is what's going on would you pay me x amount of dollars to work on this for the next six months is that what you do exactly that is exactly what I do. It is the most straightforward way uh, to do this. And honestly, the, the interesting part is that it works. Um, it's, it's one of the advantages of being in a relatively underdeveloped market. Uh, there is, again, in the financial world, there is some interest in uh, what they call uh, political risk consulting, has this deep analysis of politics and sometimes social trends, uh, but it's usually done in-house. Um, you know, the interesting part about these pitches is that, you know, if a person doesn't go for your pitch, as long as they found other value in all the conversations you had, and as long as you're not gosh about it, um, I think, you know, the relationship is often preserved. And then years later, opportunities might arise that previously didn't. So you have to be patient. You mustn't be, you kind of mustn't be pushy also, right? You you, you mustn't feel like a salesman. That's not, that's not what, what you should feel like. You're 
you're talking to them about the fundamental nature of the world, and then you happen to identify good opportunities. That's fascinating. And I appreciate the the, the concrete information there. It's because I think a lot of people, it's hard to imagine how the, how this works in detail. So that's absolutely fascinating. Now, if you don't mind, maybe for my audience, give give us a little bit of a sense of of your day to day. I mean, are you in the weeds of running a consultancy business or are you writing full time or where on that spectrum? Like, is it half of your day is dedicated to slow, patient, peaceful reading and writing and the other half is dedicated to business operations or is it, um, how does it look? How, how does that trade off look for you in practice right now? Yeah, um, basically half of my day, whether I like it or not, is eaten up at this point by just internal management of my organization. I think this is something that I underestimated eight years ago, 10 years ago. Um, it's something that I've needed to get better at. It was a new skill set that I had to learn. It was one thing to, you know, go and talk to interesting people. It was one thing to get insights. It was quite another to be in a position where you are evaluating the quality of intellectual work, not just for its truth value, but for the legibility to a client that you now know very well. So that that quality control function is there. It's a challenge. Another challenge is just, you know, human relationships. What is a professional relationship is a very interesting question that I think people don't tend to dig into too deeply. They just tend to go with a default thing, an off-the-shelf thing. But when you're creating a new company, sometimes there isn't an off-the-shelf pattern, right? We, we, you know, I work with people who are trained philosophers, who worked in finance, who worked in technology, who are lawyers. There's no unified company culture. I just had to make it. So there were years when I was almost more focused on the company side than the intellectual side. And on the other side, on the other end of it, there were years where I was almost exclusively focused on the intellectual side. So I feel I did benefit from um, a lot of like intellectual capital built up in my early 20s. But the day to day question, I have days that are reserved exclusively for reading days that are reserved exclusively for writing and days that are reserved exclusively for um, essentially intellectual discussions. I think smart people are the best way, are, are the best nootropic, right? Smart people are the best nootropic. If you can afford the, the leisure of it in the sense of the Roman concept of otium, right? The concept of leisure that improves you, set aside a day and have six back-to-back -back conversations with the smartest people you know. I guarantee you're going to be full of new, seemingly unrelated ideas a few days later. And I think the best explanation I have for this is that it just does stimulate your brain that much. And especially if you take detailed notes, it's by far the best possible education. It's the best way to hit the cutting edge of research. You know, one of the things I also do that seems perhaps less useful to my business, but I think is just vital to my intellectual project is reaching out to top intellectuals of various kinds and just talking to them, right? That's something that takes up some of my time as well. And I feel it's unskippable. Is this just an email? Are you asking to jump on a call with people? How do you think about that difficulty of wanting to connect with smart people for probably mutual gain, not just out of self-interest, but not wanting to bother people and not wanting to waste their time, that, that sort of uh, difficulty? How do, you, how do you think that through? Well, again, the, the difficulty is having something worth saying. So there should be at least one intellectual question where they can contribute and you can contribute. And you better be quite sure about it. You better be quite sure that you have something unique to offer, something novel, right, that you've thought through some fundamental problem. 
Um, and yet, you do cold emails. Um, sometimes you perhaps, if you're running a show, you know, Justin, you're pretty well positioned. But uh, for example, I got to talk to Slavoj Žižek because I was contacted to interview Slavoj Žižek. So we ended up having calls before that interview and after that interview. And that's why I got to pick his brain about politics. And, you know, he enjoyed it too. Um, there are introductions that people can make for you. Right. So as soon as you talk to a few smart people or a few elite people, suddenly you can talk to all of them, at least if you didn't make a terrible impression. If you were if you were what you promised to be, uh, it seems the world is very small and everyone knows each other. Right. Um, and then, yeah, I think a call is irreplaceable. I, I think emails can be valuable, but unless you have a call or an in-person conversation, you're never going to pick up the, you know, the, the intellectual dark matter of that person. You might, you might know or to ask something that's typical to ask for their field, but if you, you know, wanted to figure out what their, what their ideology is, how they think, how, you know, how their neurons fire, I'm sure you've had the experience of just looking at someone's face and feeling like you kind of understand how they think now after you know, their, all their tics like, seem to be a little bit different the cadence of speech is a little bit different. There's something that's really hard to put into words that I think is, uh, is picked up in face-to-face. -face. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me because when I think about my email inbox, I occasionally get emails from, as we all do, I, you know, I get emails from people who maybe it's like a really long email with a bunch of different ideas that are kind of all over the place, or maybe it's some sort of request on my time or, you know, something that someone wants me to do for them or these types of emails where it's like, I don't really know what to do with it. I'm not necessarily against receiving that email and I'm not cold to possibly, you know, doing something with this person, but it's like, I don't really know what to do with it. Whereas one type of email I don't get is like a three sentence email where the three sentences are just like a really good idea, a novel theoretical idea that, that sounds compelling and, and interests me. And Hey, do you want to talk about this for 15 minutes or something like that? and making it really simple for me to do that with them. That's probably hard to resist, right? Because it, it is pretty rare. That kind, that kind of contact is going to stand out in your, in your inbox because it is pretty rare. Is that, is that kind of the vibe I'm getting from you? Yeah, exactly. In fact, this is one of, the, you know, one of the reasons I have a public presence and why I discuss so many of my ideas is I, I hope people will reach out to me. Uh, I answer nearly all intellectually content related emails that I received. I've hopped on many calls. You'd be surprised how often uh, very eager students from all over the world will just contact you and, you know, ask, you know, some of them are going to ask for internships, which is okay, but I'm extra happy when they ask about ideas. Right. And, uh, often after a brief correspondence, I'll do, I'll do a call. They, like you said, they stand out these emails. Something I'm, I'm, something I'm getting from you is just in your ethos and, and your larger, style of, of managing your operations is it seems there's a really high return on quality in, in all things. If you're really spending a lot of time doing serious reading, doing serious writing on serious ideas that are real and meaningful, using patience and a certain kind of calm, poised, purposeful attitude you it's kind of remarkable what you can do in terms of building relationships, building businesses, building projects. Whereas a lot of people, I think, and often very, very smart people 
who have great ideas, who do act, who do actually read a lot, and maybe they do write a lot of blog posts, or you know, they're they're involved in many things and they're very smart, but they're also just so distracted and trying to do a million things at once, and you know, replying to Twitter beefs and replying to comments here and res responding to too many DMs on this other thing. That it's like, do you sense that there's a there's a real problem in the way that independent intellectuals, especially very online independent intellectuals just are kind of having their brains scrambled by, by too much going on, too much activity. You strike me as someone very poised, very purposeful. And I, I am I onto something here? Do you, do you think you practice um, a kind of intellectual lifestyle where you're, you're not really getting distracted by all the millions of different things to get distracted by? And, and you really, you're focusing on really high ROI specific activities. Am, am I right in sensing this? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, you know, almost everything that I've worked on this year that I've written on was just on my list to write about since about 2016 or 17, because writing is slow. So, you know, just now I'm starting to talk about my long history hypothesis that, you know, human agriculture is much older than usually assumed. So I'll have articles coming out on that. Um, like a few months ago, I finally got to write about my theories of intellectual legitimacy and intellectual production, especially, you know, where do the frontiers of intellectual progress form? So I the only way I could do what I did was to um, decide, well, what do I front load and what do I do later? And honestly, if you don't have to report to anyone about your research progress, you can do a lot in four to five years. You can do a lot. And then the only question is, do you have the social and economic runway to do to do those few years of thinking? Because if you can, that's going to be vastly better than, you know, any any university education, especially, again, if you reach out to the very best minds in the world that you can. Um, so that's sort of like on the building the intellectual capital side. But on day to day, on distraction, I think people's brains are scrambled by the Internet. But it goes both ways. I said earlier, you know, uh, the world's smartest people are the best nootropic. Well, guess what? Some of the world's smartest people are pseudonymous Twitter accounts or anonymous commenters. So people's brains being scrambled by forums in, 10 years ago or by Twitter right now or maybe Clubhouse if you're being, you know, a little bit more verbal IQ oriented. Uh, this has, it's, it, it's like a blessing and a curse. The curse is, you know, the 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 algorithm is what decides what you'll talk about next you'll be focused on the discourse if you look at my like you know all of my public material it kind of ignores the discourse i don't care where the discourse is going right i know what the next interesting question is i learned about it in last week's conversation or i came up with this question six months ago it's what i've been like thinking about i'm not going to be derailed by a small political event though people might ask me about the political event um you know, that that kind of like you, you kind of have to distance yourself from that. But having said this, it's very important to maintain the best intellectual relationships you have. Like mm, one of the top 10 people that I value uh, who, whose input I value the most when it comes to, say, topics of political science and industrial policy and economics is just a pseudonymous Twitter account who I have no idea who they are, which is like have a DM going where I ask him, so, or, or her, or they, uh, you know, I ask, you know, so what do you think about this? You know, I wrote a draft here. What do you think about this draft? And then they anonymously go through it and, and check it out. Um, those you maintain. So on the internet, maintain relationships, disregard narrative. 
I love that. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think I broadly agree. Now you write a newsletter and you write a blog. And by the way, I'll, I'll have links to all of these things in the, in the show notes for anyone out there who wants to check out Samo further. So clearly you are savvy to the, the basic needs of maintaining an internet presence and, and growing an audience in that way. You don't reject that altogether and that some of the distractions that that might bring about. But I also get the sense that you're not super active all over the place on all the different platforms. You're not aggressively building a clubhouse following. And, uh, and so I'm curious, do you have any, any heuristics for deciding what is really worthwhile? Because I think this is something a lot of intellectuals are struggling with right now. It's like every week there seems like there's this new thing that's super hot and super successful. So something that seems really promising, whether it's shooting up to a million clubhouse followers in you know, a few weeks of, of being active on the platform, or it's uh, paid Substacks would be another example of, of a recent trend that kind of came like a bat out of hell, very attractive, seems to be succeeding for many people. But the impact on intellectuals is constantly making them tempted to change up their operations, to do this new thing. And you can easily get stuck on this kind of hamster wheel where you're just jumping from platform to the platform, managing operations. So what kinds of principles do you use or heuristics to decide, okay, a newsletter was worth building. I'm going to, I'm going to maintain that, but this other thing, not worth my time. Not going to do that. How do you think about those, those, those challenges or questions? I mean, a lot of the bigger bets that I made, I made years before any of this emerged, right? Like say, um, my newsletter isn't monetized. It's not something that I've considered immediately monetizing. It uh, actually evolved from this perspective that I don't necessarily know how to predict the future of the internet. There are some things I'm willing to predict, right? That's why I had the one of my more controversial uh, articles was that decentralization of the internet is inevitable, but that's because it intersected with uh, how society works, how information works. It was less about the specific platforms. Um, I think on a platform, you're necessarily a product. So no matter which platform you commit to, understand that this is a marriage of convenience. You'll be there for a few years. Who knows if the political winds change, maybe you'll be canceled. Figure out how to take the, the credibility you acquire there and flip it into something else or the connections you acquire there and flip it into something else. Um, I think that email is really good because it seems currently that it's very hard to get someone off of email. And in fact, you can take uh, you know the emails that you've gathered either in your equivalent of a Rolodex or the subscribers uh, to your newsletter. So I think investing in email is very good. In fact, when I was writing the initial newsletters, I often would just write for a group of five to 10 friends. And I was thinking, and if any of these hundreds or thousands of people get value out of that on top of it, that's even better. But honestly, the full effort of the recuper, you know, the full effort was repaid by those five to 10 friends who presumably would reply to something that was worth their time. Um, I think having your, so email, because you keep it, your own personal website because you control it and because no matter which platform you go to or how the platforms switch, uh, it goes back to your personal website and you can link back to it and you can get people in the habit of checking it. And again, subscribing to something like a newsletter that might update them on what's happening on your website. Um, number three is I think you should identify where the high IQ people are hanging out. My two strong bets were kind of Twitter and YouTube. And on Twitter, again, I mostly just talk about my ideas. And on YouTube, I try to present them. The reason why I went for these two is 
um, on YouTube, I, th I think I'm like a little bit less successful. I'm not really a YouTuber um, in the sense of knowing the ins and outs. Um, but I believed that there is something irreplaceable about the lecture and there's something irreplaceable about hearing someone's voice. And if I believed in the value of my ideas, then I would try to, you know, share them and, and teach teach on these relevant topics, whether it's like, you know, ancient Chinese history, um, modern, you know, modern political theory, or, you know, something a little bit interesting, like the origin of civilization, and so on. So I felt that it was a good teaching medium first. And my logic was also, well, I'm saving all of these videos, even if I ever leave YouTube, I still have a lot of video material. So I thought medium first, platform second, and I make sure to archive all my stuff as well. Uh, so Twitter, on the other hand, though, that's where like the smartest people I could find online happened to be in about 2015, 16. Um, it'll be something it'll be something else in five or six years. And it was a good platform for messaging strangers. I message a lot of strangers, especially anyone who I think is intellectually inclined. All right. All right. I love it. Thank you for that uh, kind of detailed look into how you think about those questions. So I'd love now to talk a little bit more about some of your big ideas because you've been, as we've been talking about, you know, you've been doing serious uh, professional quality research for quite some time in this very interesting novel uh, kind of uh, model that you've carved out for yourself. So one of your big ideas that you're working on at the moment is what you call great founder theory. I believe this is the, the focus of your major research agenda at the moment. And you've, you've written widely on this. You seem to be developing this in a model where you write blog posts and you kind of share pieces of it as you're working on it over time, but it all accumulates into what you call great founder theory. So I would love if you wouldn't mind just for my audience who might not be familiar with your work already, could you give us a quick summary of the of just the overarching thesis for listeners who are just kind of curious for what what is the essence of the great founder theory? Well, great founder theory tries to be a theory of history. A theory of history is this broad explanation of what are the most important factors that determine, you know, the these big outcomes of the history uh, of human history, of the development of civilization, of the stages of civilizational development, like where do technologies come from, where do new religions come from, you know, how do economic systems change. Um, Great Founders Theory proposes that there are particular individ individuals that could be considered to be almost inventors of particular civilizations or worldviews or what I call social technologies, right? A social technology being uh, culture, but viewed kind of instrumentally in this um, functionalist perspective, right? If we were to try to pigeonhole this into the academic approach, I think like a fun functionalist uh, sociology perspective is about closest to the way that I think about this stuff. Um, you know, what might be a social technology? Who might be a great founder? Well, I give several different examples. I think that, for example, Charlemagne, is you know a great founder. Patton is not a great founder, the World War II general. So merely being a great man, a great individual, isn't enough to be a great founder. Why does Charlemagne, a successful conqueror, king in early medieval Europe, get that uh, title, in my opinion? Well, it's because he does deep and wide-scale social reforms throughout his empire. He reintroduces the study of Latin and, and reintroduces Roman law to a system that had mostly been relying on tribal law. He creates modern feudalism, sorry, modern feudalism in the big picture, right? Medieval feudalism. 
um, out of a much simpler previous tribal structure, uh, defining how Europe will do inheritance and political power for a thousand years. He differentiates Western Europe from, say, the Byzantine Empire, from the Orthodox world, gives the Catholic Church a new lease on life. I could keep on listing things, but you see how what he's doing is grabbing the big systems of society and reshaping them. Now, I'm not saying he knew where Western civilization is going to go. I'm just saying that he was very intentional about doing things like, you know, being crowned Holy Roman Emperor or upsetting a lot of his political allies by introducing a reform as to how, you know, the the aristocrats of the Frankish kingdom are going to raise their children or by, say, partially replacing uh, his tribal power structures with a more bureaucratic sort of church-administered Roman law-type structure, right? He was very intentional in that. Like, maybe it was more instinct or maybe it was more planning. I kind of don't care. Now, of course, it's easy to do this if you're a ruler. But what if you're not a ruler? Who else might qualify? I would argue that Confucius and arguably also Aristotle both qualify, where I note that Aristotle is not just a philosopher. He is a tutor to Alexander the Great. So, Arguably, you know, his views about politics, society, the intellectual projects that he valued deeply affected Alexander. Note that Alexander, at great expense, would have animals shipped back all the way from Asia, from India to Aristotle for study. So the idea that they were alienated from each other later in life, I think that just doesn't hold water, right? So you could debate maybe the real founder there is Alexander rather than Aristotle, But I think the flourishing of Hellenistic science actually is a piece of evidence towards Aristotle because they build on him, right? Things like Eratosthenes accurately estimating the size of the earth, but also practical applications such as Heron of Alexandria building the world's first steam engine, or eventually centuries later, Archimedes figuring out hydrostatics and all sorts of interesting things about geometry and various types of machinery. Um, So that defined, I think, first Hellenistic civilization and later on other things. Um, Confucius is interesting because I would say he's the most successful movement builder in human history because he's like, Chinese civilization is fragmented. We need to rethink all our rituals. Then we need to think we need to teach the princes how to perform these rituals and how to be virtuous rulers. And then we're going to have political stability again. Well, say what you will about China, it certainly has had political stability for thousands of years at a time since then. Absolutely. So, okay, fascinating. I think a lot of people listening are naturally going to be wondering if there are any living figures who, you know, most qualify for what you what you call the great founder. Anyone come to mind? It's an interesting and difficult question. It's difficult because, you know, it's uh, it's sometimes too soon to tell who is posing and who is, you know, Uh, seeding the seeds of a new society. You know, if you say, look at a politician in France, like, you know, Emmanuel Macron, he's saying, oh, the French Republic has to think for itself. We can't have American ideas at our campuses. We need to believe in the greatness of French civilization. Well, okay, what is he? Is he reshaping French society? Or is he just behaving the way we've always expected French presidents to behave? I mean, the French themselves have always expected the president to at least Um, you know, have intellectual pretensions. That's the difference between France and America. But no, these might just be pretensions. They might not have substance. So I think for, for, say, Macron, I would bet against it, but I wouldn't be shocked if in his 60 years he is remembered as as important as Napoleon. Um, You know, for for a little bit controversially, I thought that maybe Putin 
would be a successful refounder of Russian civilization. Um, I'm currently a little bit more pessimistic on that because over the last five years, I've seen that he has failed to reindustrialize Russia. So Russia's economy remains tiny. They produce advanced technology, including drones, uh, but they've not really grown an industrial base. Uh, he's sort of revived Orthodox Christianity, but note the emphasis here is on revived, not reformed. You know, it's it's like, let's put it this way, he is a live player in the live player versus dead player dichotomy I play around with, but I don't think he's a great founder. So maybe that's a disappointing answer. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. It's interesting to pause on how this theory of the great founder does cut against the grain of a lot of contemporary opinion, I would say, in, insofar as one very common idea, which I think has a lot of respect and, 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 and for some good reason, says that a lot of the most important innovations or discoveries or phenomena in modern society are increasingly of a crowd-generated nature. And one could think of a, a few different examples, perhaps, but you know, Foucault talked about the death of the author, and, and there are many kind of intellectual currents that seem to suggest that the importance of really strong individuals is actually receding from from significance and, and and that the ship has sailed in fact arguably on truly great individuals in this very crowd-based uh network-based society that we now live in I, I take it that you 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 disagree with this but what would you say to critics who might make that argument to your to your theory about the the significance of great founders yeah, I'll start my rebuttal by conceding a small point. I think that scenes, so small groups of people, can develop something like genius. So the genius of scenes, uh, they can, in fact, think together. But I think, you know, to, to really get to the frontier of thought or action requires many, many steps away from the crowd. So almost by definition, I think the crowd never can find the next surprising, truly unusual thing. Small groups of people, yes. Something like anything from four to 30 people. If you look at the historical um, context of, say, the salons in 18th century France or uh, the intellectuals that might gather or the doers that might gather at the courts uh, in Renaissance Italy and, you know, the sort of uh, scientists of the early 20th century, such as, you know, Albert Einstein and so on, engaging in things like the Olympian Society, quite appropriately named, which was just a fancy name for a bunch of friends gathering together over wine and discussing the cutting edge problems in physics, and then the unusual part, solving them, right? These scenes, that I think is super important. Those networks are super important. You can see that even from my entire intellectual strategies to just to try to become smarter through those networks. Now, having said all of this, I already talked about scaling. Um, you know, I think the reason why we believe that great crowds of people achieve things is because the people who move these crowds today tend to want to be a little bit quieter about what they're doing. We don't see it as legitimate to be a powerful or brilliant individual in quite the same way we might have in the 16th century or quite the same way we might have, honestly, even in the 18th and the 19th century. Right In the 19th century, you might hate Napoleon because you are British, but you admired Napoleon the man as larger than life. Do we have that generosity of spirit in us today, or would we just hate the enemy? I think we would just hate the enemy. Um, so I think that there's a desire to hide that's, you know, let's, you mentioned crypto earlier. You know, if Satoshi Nakamoto is in fact an individual rather than a department of the NSA, 
he in fact has chosen to hide. You know, they have chosen to hide, likely with very good reason, no? So is, is Bitcoin really this like bottom-up movement or is it the work of one man? And I think the answer is sort of like, well, the one, the one individual or the small scene, they cause the crowds of millions to move, right? So I, I kind of like historically, to give another example, I believe more in Vladimir Lenin than I do in the inevitability of socialist revolution in Russia in, 19, in, in the 1900s. Hmm. That's interesting because you, you, you foreran my, my next question, which was going to be, does Satoshi Nakamoto, you know, support or, or, um, argue against your hypothesis? It's so it's, it's a tricky one. And you mentioned, you mentioned the possibility that it might be some kind of, uh, you know, federal plant. I, 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 that's kind of interesting. Are you, are you perhaps more skeptical of Bitcoin than perhaps other people in our milieu? I think it's a great investment, but I'm skeptical that it will meaningfully change the balance of power in the Western world. So I, I don't expect it to be the source of reform in the West. Say, even if Bitcoin becomes the default currency, I think the government will simply outlaw anonymizing services. And then you guess, do you know what you have? You have a distributed tamper-proof ledger. Couldn't the IRS wish for a nicer gift? So I really think it's just, you know, it might even make taxation easier once the dust settles. But there's a lot of stuff that happens before the dust settles. Um, I also think that, you know, Bitcoin's super interesting because it is sort of it, on a one side, it's an information technology. In another sense, it's one of the few information technologies that's a genuine social technology, right? It actually does overcome um, coordination issues. The invention of Bitcoin is the invention of either a new kind of money or a new kind of legal contract. I think I have to say that, yes, Bitcoin is a social technology. It actually qualifies even if it's implemented in code rather than in the psychology of human minds. And let's be honest, the way Bitcoin has evolved, it's as much implemented in human minds as it is on code, right? Really, the, 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 the fandom of that currency is something else. Absolutely. Fascinating. So what I see as one of the other major vectors of your research has to do with intellectual le legitimacy. And it's something I've, I've thought about for quite a while, and I've, I've written quite a lot about as well. So I thought this would be a, a natural next stopping point for us to discuss. I'm, I'm curious just to start kind of for the audience to, to help the audience gain a sense of your interest in intellectual legitimacy and what you have in mind when you talk about that. One kind of dumb but maybe interesting question to start with is just what what is the essential difference between popular ideas, ideas that people like, or ideas that spread versus legitimated ideas? Yeah, I think that there is often the case that there exist popular ideas that people believe are not appropriate to bring up in polite company. If you look at, say, in which context it is acceptable to talk about astronomy or in which context, uh, sorry, astrology and which, you know, astronomy also, by the way, if you talk about astronomy at the wrong party, that can be a faux pas, certainly, as much as astrology might be at a different party. Um, but, you know, there's there's an associated status ranking with ideas. There's an associated um, seriousness with ideas. I think that whether we like it or not, we always conflate the messenger for the message, right? You know, we can do all sorts of experiments. You know, I can have the same exact lecture delivered by someone who's two feet taller than me or one and a half feet taller than me, you know, a giant. Um, and I'm pretty sure people would find the ideas even more compelling than if I present them. I can present them, you know, uh, you know, 
dressed professionally, or I can go there unshaven and, you know, dressed like a homeless person. Uh, San Francisco, you might not even be able to tell who's the professional and who's the homeless person. But the, the, real, the real thing about this is that what feel like impartial natural responses are very much partial responses, right? We're social creatures primarily. In fact, most of our thinking is outsourced rather than insourced. Most of the ideas we share, we got from somewhere else. So in a way, if you really want to engage deeply with um, your own thinking, you have to accept the extent to which perhaps you're not a pure individual. Um, And, you know, if you start to do that, you know, interesting phenomena happen. You start to make these observations about there are things everyone knows, but no one says. There are things everyone knows and everyone says when they want to do some vice signaling. There are things that almost no one knows, but if you say them, everyone recognizes. This like inner logic of ideas like explodes in like like these playful social experiments you can perform. Like I'm sure, you know, you you've had like, you know, a very, you know, intellectual career yourself. When you bring up ideas and social consequences, seeing people's responses is half the fun, right? It's like it's a set of lighthearted social experiments. So I encourage people in the audience to like really consider what does it say about a person to bring up a topic? What's the what's the explicit text and what's the subtext? Now, having said all of this, I still believe that, you know, there is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as content. It's not just all how we are interacting with each other, how we're regulating our social lives. Um, but it is the, the case that truth or ideas must live among us, right? They, they have to live in the flesh, in actual people. So if, uh, if a certain truth about nature, about the universe, uh, cannot live in human society, then, well, humans are never going to learn about it. Fascinating. So to give you, let's say, a hard example, just to kind of tease out what you consider to be the, the criteria of intellectual legitimacy. Take someone like Diogenes, the famous uh, philosopher, you could call him, although he was really more of what we would today think of as a performance artist, famously, you know, lived on the street, kind of like a homeless man, and engaged in uh, a variety of quite odd acts, ranging from, you know, barking, barking at people to other kind of bizarre performances. And uh, you might probably already be aware that Alexander the Great is very famous for having said, if I were not Alexander... I would wish to be Diogenes. Does Diogenes and his teachings, if you want to call them that, do they have intellectual legitimacy at the time? Or is that something different? I think they straightforwardly did. Um, Because, you know, his teachings were about a certain approach about the world and how to, you know, how um, how to evaluate it. Also note that Diogenes was approached by Alexander the Great. He was already famous, right? If this was performance art, he was the Lady Gaga of performance art. I guarantee you, Alexander was not approaching random Greeks living in barrel, barrels saying that everything sucks, okay? He was approaching Diogenes, right? Sure, right. But Diogenes is not, you know, pitching, right? He's not, Diogenes wasn't sending an email to Alexander. So I guess what you're saying is that, I guess what, I guess what you're saying is that because Diogenes' teachings, gained a reputation that won over the uh, applause of powerful elites is that itself a kind of indication that they have gained legitimacy is that how you think about it you know pitching it's like it's it's a very startup terminology it's it's very startup terminology 
I I think that there's no there's no issue with it, but ideally you just put your stuff out there and the quality speaks to yourself and people come to you. And with Diogenes, he did put his stuff out there, right? The whole city state the whole city was talking about him. He was a known quantity. He was someone that you might disagree with, but you're definitely going to tell an amusing anecdote about Diogenes even if you disagree with Diogenes. So this is where fame and infamy are interestingly non-overlapping. I sometimes, you know, I sometimes joke that, you know, if you owe a billion dollars, you're still a billionaire. So I feel like there are many people who used infamy to bootstrap to the attention of elites, right? And then, you know, if you're not if you're not threatening in a way where you might be seen as seditious, again, note Diogenes is operating in a world where philosophers are occasionally killed for their teachings. So being over the top crazy also makes you harmless. No city council was going to put Diogenes to death. A city council, you know, a gathering, a jury did put Socrates to death, possibly because Socrates was, you know, hanging out in rich people's houses rather than in the streets in a barrel. Interesting. But you would say they both had intellectual legitimacy. Yes, I would say that they both had intellectual legitimacy. And like, really, the key thing about it is that if you query your own intuitions about what is intellectually legitimate, you you, you realize that you are evaluating the quality of an idea and yes, the status of an idea, but also kind of like, is this idea pro-social? So I would almost reframe it and say, you know, the, the, the case for intellectual legitimacy is that you don't want disaligned intelligences terraforming society. There's this like really interesting example where, you know, there was, um, I was, I was, I was like 10 years old. We were playing Risk, you know, it's a stupid board game with some other kids from the block. And I found a, a clear typo, which I later confirmed was a typo in the rules that changed how the rules should be interpreted. I tried to argue this to the other kids. And then one at one point, a kid just takes me aside. I was like, Samo, stop wasting time. Look, even if you're right, you're just, you're, you're just like, you're too smart. We don't know whether you're trying to trick us, okay? We're, so we're going to play the rules we're going to play the game the same way we always played it. That, by the way, reveals that I was a, an insufferable 10-year-old. So I'm, I hope I got better over time. Um, I should have had more social skills. I probably would have gotten my way if I wasn't so obsessed with showing off. So if anything, I caution the audience to show off less. It's very important to have substance first, right? And only then the other stuff. But I think society is like those kids always. Why should we go with the thoughts of an intellectual that straightforwardly hates us? Like, that's why the bitterness of isolation of thought is kind of, it's, it's poison, right? You're, it's self-poisonous. I think to truly have your ideas flourish, you must love society. You must love the people in it. And, you know, genuinely try to be, you know, kind of benevolent, to be positively oriented. And I think rebellion is a useful thing to start with but it ultimately limits limits growth because it, it is still like a, a rebel always assumes that they will be destroyed i would claim that subconsciously very quietly they kind of assume that you know eventually they're going to get me and i'm going to be this tragic figure like galileo or or, or, or jan hus or whatever i'm going to be burned at the stake and um i'm like okay so it feels like you've already written your play why don't you write a better ending to it how do you think Substack converted the paid newsletter into a more high status and we might say legitimated medium because, you know, the paid newsletter used to be seen as this 
kind of vulgar commercial medium, uh, you know, fit for salespeople, marketing people. But now all of a sudden, authoring a paid newsletter is impressive. It's cosmopolitan. If you're successful on Substack, that's the kind of thing you want to share at a New York City cocktail party, whereas it wasn't before. So from your understanding of, of intellectual legitimacy, what do you think Substack did that was so clever or what's the trick there? I mean, it did several things. First off, I think it managed to rebrand blogging. In 2009, if you had a blog, you wanted to share that at a cocktail party. In 2015, you no longer wanted to do that. And the reason is major newspapers would essentially run story after story about how blogs are dangerous, how they're misinformation, how people are just going out there on the internet and writing without a journalism degree. And you know, all, all sorts of pearl clutching essentially. So over time, the connotation of blogging just started dropping a little bit. It's been rehabilitated, but it was very helpful that when you said, I'm starting a, a substack, you could say, I'm starting a substack rather than I'm starting a blog. Uh, there was a brief period where uh, a website called Medium used a same, the same small trick of rebranding, re where people would put their blogs on Medium and it would be you know, better received than, say, on Blogger or on WordPress or something like that. So there was a small rebranding effort just right out the bat to have something that's reliably not called a blogging, even though it basically is blogging. Second, uh, emails can be very personal. You read them in the privacy of your own browser. Arguably, you know, what you receive in your inbox is the last remnant of the internet as it existed before the social media age. Substack does not comfortably rest in the social media box. You can kind of argue it's social media, but it really is more about the writing than about who's doing the writing. So that's number two. You receive it in your inbox. You didn't, you know, go visit, you didn't visit it on a specific website somewhere. Though you can also do that. So that was, that was a little bit of the genius of, of Substack. But isn't the inbox still a kind of vulgar place, right? It's where you get your business messages. It's where you you know, get letters from your boss or where you send, you know, messages to your employees. So I'm not sure I find that itself a convincing answer. I mean, what about putting it in the inbox would increase its legitimacy? Well, I think also, you know, it's where your boss is, but it also might be where you avoid work. You know, there's a lot of people checking email, plausibly seen as work, checking Twitter, usually not seen as, as plausibly work. No, I see, I see your point about vulgarity, but I really think that People retreated after 2015 from the public internet, right? They're used now to discussing things in small private DM groups, you know, be it Discord, be it Signal group DMs, be it Twitter DMs, right? So I feel the privacy of the inbox became alluring. And I think this would have happened whether or not Substack took off. So just to push back a little bit, however, to acknowledge what you said, yes, like the vulgarity of email of the paid newsletter had to be overcome. And I think it was overcome with two specific, you know, fortunate circumstances or, or smart strategies on the side of Substack. Number one, they used the same trick that OnlyFans did, which was really publicize well your top earners. This is America, right? Anything that makes you enough money is morally legitimate. Okay. That's just how it works. <laughs> so, you know, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Suddenly had an answer. Well, actually, you know, I'm I'm earning way better 
than anyone else from my my uh, you know Harvard class of 2016 or whatever because I write because my thoughts are that appealing because I have an audience of tens of thousands uh, of of subscribers uh, and I think that the publicizing concrete individuals who managed to earn a lot I think that did a lot to legitimize it because note that you know professionalism in a way is vulgar but on another side you know a blogger writes for free a journalist is a paid professional. Ah, but what about a Substack author that's earning a lot of money? You know what? They're still an author. They're an author. They're not they're not just like a poster. They're not just posting online wasting time. So, I feel the 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 very fact that money could be earned in high amounts made it legitimate where previously paid newsletters were kind of these like weird marketing gimmicks that a corporate center might try to push on you or that, you know, a Nigerian prince might run a paid newsletter or something. It felt a little bit scammy uh, because it wasn't big enough, right? If it's big enough, it's not a scam is, is one way to joke about it. Um, so that's number one. And, and and I think number two was there was moral legitimacy to leaving in protest the big organizations. Note how many of the names on top of the Substack list are people who had public falling outs with their organizations. Sometimes these individuals left with the moral high ground. That was very important. People subscribed to Substack to support those individuals and their courage. And also to, you know, flip a bird to the New York Times, flip a bird to some of these institutions that they feel have failed them, especially in the year of the pandemic, let alone the, pre, you know, the political chaos of the last five years. So there is a lot of pent up mm, resentment at the media abdicating its own role and an instant reward to people who, again, used to be professional writers who used to work for these institutions going out and earning good money, doing what the media should have been doing all along, right? Just producing high quality High quality writing, good evaluations of what's happening. Yeah. So in a way, cancel culture helped Substack. Right. Absolutely. And it sounds like you're you you see Substack as being able to capitalize on that and kind of aggregate the demand for extra non-cancelable content by basically making sure that they have authors, marquee authors that make a good income was the way that you think Substack was able to concentrate demand for and and concentrate demand and supply for the kind of post cancellation uh, writing scene. So yeah, I, I see what you're saying for sure. Now you named your consulting firm Bismarck Analysis, presumably referring to the to the great Russian, I'm sorry, Prussian statesman. So what, what's so interesting to you about Bismarck? What, what was the main lesson you took for him, or what do you find so special about Bismarck? I mean, Otto von Bismarck is um, someone that's a very well-known historical figure, but in some ways I think he's still underappreciated. Um, he was, he embodied a lot of the qualities that I think, you know, I should aspire to, at least in my professional life. So there's a note of personal admiration where, you know, if you think about it, you know, okay, you, you ask you ask Machiavelli for advice, it's not clear he's telling you the truth. You ask Bismarck for advice, it feels like he's telling you the truth. You might not like it, but he's telling you the truth, right? And, you know, Bismarck also doesn't flinch away from power as, say, a Machiavelli wouldn't. Uh, however, it still feels like that there's integrity there. Now, 
these are vague stereotypes that I'm referring to. These are just two names and their connotations, though obviously when naming a company, you should consider the connotations of your name. Um, but his his actual life bears this out. He's very much known for these sort of statements such as, you know, you have more respect for laws and sausages until you see how they're made, is a quotation by him. Um, from the perspective of my research, he came to my attention as the most likely inventor of the modern state. Uh, he created the world's first welfare state. He unified a previously disunified country into a whole. So the unification of Germany was done significantly on Bismarck's initiative. Um, I note that this is one of the reasons Bismarck also admired Abraham Lincoln. He believed Abraham Lincoln was unifying fragmented North American states into a single unitary modern state. So I feel, um, you know, he was somewhat socially socially conservative. So a lot of his friends, you know, a lot of his former allies and friends were uh, surprised that he would endorse the welfare state. But his actual view was that, you know, capitalism was more destructive to the Prussian social system because it invited socialist revolution. It left open these spaces for all sorts of weird political experiments. Um, also, he, you know, was not interested in imperialism and colonialism, the classical sense. He believed that it would entangle Europe in catastrophic wars, uh, which it did, right? World War I is partially fueled by uh, colonial, uh, colonial uh, disputes and fragments. There's a thing called the Moroccan crisis that happens a few years before, uh, you know, the Archduke is assassinated in Sarajevo, where the Moroccan crisis was this thing where almost war erupted uh, between Germany and what would later become the Entente. It didn't, but, you know, it was a little bit of a powder keg. Um, he believed in international order. He, he sort of like, um, you know, redefined the way international elites related to each other, right? So he found concrete solutions to preserve the peace. In your essay, The YouTube Revolution and Knowledge Transfer, you write favorably about YouTube. Mostly you talk about its capacity for transmitting tacit knowledge, which for people listening is, is basically kind of practical know-how that historically has always been difficult to distribute at scale. But I'm curious about why intellectual work on YouTube seems to still not quite be legitimated in the way that, let, let's say, Substack seems to be legitimating paid newsletters. I'm curious why you think that is or what, what, it, would, what it will take for that to change where, you know, the often very brilliant philosophy YouTubers or brilliant science YouTubers who are often doing uh, essentially academic level, professional level analyses or commentary on quite erudite and sophisticated topics. When, when do those people start to get the intellectual legitimacy that a Substack author gets or what, and what's blocking that? Do you, what do you think? Well, to be a little bit contrarian, I would say that actually YouTubers already have a route to intellectual legitimacy if they are willing to become filmmakers. Um, you might have heard of ContraPoints. Whatever one thinks of ContraPoints, um, you know, the, the material on that YouTube channel is intellectually legitimate. And part of it is it's clearly attempting to do filmmaking. It's clearly doing long form. So in a way, it's like counter-signaling the, um, it's counter-signaling the associations we have with YouTube, unserious bad comment section, um, you know, like shoddy, shoddy camera work. So that's one answer. It is possible to upload basically long intellectually flavored documentaries onto YouTube. 
Um, but that's that's you know that's that's something different. Why isn't the short five or six minute conceptual video um, quite as intellectually legitimate? Well, actually, there are some categories there as well. Um, you know, there's um, what's it called? Uh, is it CPG Gray or something like this? Has these like you know animated videos that explain conceptual material of very con- various kinds? There's like a very popular uh, YouTube video titled uh, Rules for Rulers or something like this, several million views, cartoonish explanation of political theory, uh, but still it does explain, you know, why, uh, why you know, how dictators stay in power, why political uh, systems collapse or don't. So there are a few aesthetic niches on it. So my answer actually is, you know, get better aesthetics. It really, it really is a little bit about the packaging because even if the thinkers themselves they don't need to be that good at aesthetics, that good at presentation. But someone has to do it on their behalf, right? Someone has to do it. If they don't do it, someone else has to because that's that's sort of the thing that will make it pro-social. Does someone like ContraPoints really have intellectual le- legitimacy? I mean, I, I, w- even if you like her or you think she's very smart or cool or whatever, I, she, it's not obvious to me that sh- she she fits the bill for what I would think of as intellectual legitimacy. I mean... Maybe maybe I'm missing something though. What to someone who would be skeptical of this claim, uh, you know what 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 separates someone who is merely popular and impressive and has a large audience? Ver- what 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 really makes the difference between being popular and and having that that unique status of being considered intellectually legitimate? Maybe I'm still. Um, processing that from from your earlier description perhaps no that's a very good question it's a very good question well look contrapoints is invited to speak on the topics that she's made videos on so you know again it's really questions which level are we talking about in absolute terms i would say that jordan peterson has higher levels of intellectual legitimacy than contrapoints though of course this might anger a completely different audience if i say that um and but the simple thing here is no one read his book. I mean, if they read it is because they saw him on YouTube, right? So I feel like there's a little bit of a disadvantage, maybe a thousand year old disadvantage where the written word has supremacy. So if you are primarily known for writing long philosophical tracts like Slavoj Žižek is, but you happen to be charismatic or at least interesting on camera, well, then you can mostly build as a visual personality and people will pretend to have read your book. Ah, what if you get famous on YouTube first and then write a book and the book is like, mm, you know, not quite as deep, but kind of goes maybe maybe as a self-help genre or something like this. It doesn't quite work. Or in the case of ContraPoints, there's no book at all, at least none that I'm aware of. Um, but, you know, if, if ContraPoints wrote a book, I think the legitimacy of her channel would go up in people's minds. So a little bit of this is um, who is the audience you're speaking to? And for right now, the stereotype seems to be that um, there are particular topics that are just not consumed on YouTube. Like, for example, no one would believe a mathematical proof presented in a YouTube video versus uploaded on, you know, on on one of the preprint websites. Same goes for biochemical research. I'll actually claim that philosophers are really close to being able to just present things in YouTube videos. I think we're 
there's like a few clicks missing, but I think there were several generations of public intellectuals that kind of did the work of normalizing this. Um, you know, and what it, are those few clicks missing? Well, look, there's something deeply morally good about providing actually effective self-help. There's, however, an unfortunate shadow of this. The shadow is most of the people consuming your work need self-help. Therefore, most people's first exposure to your work is by an acolyte who might end up being less than impressive. So if we could get people on YouTube discussing the good, the true, um, the beautiful in real terms or whatever, or, you know, maybe the ugly, the untrue, it, it doesn't matter. I'm not trying to like evoke some type of, of, of bygone aesthetic. I'm more talking about um, topics that are really, really fundamental, but conveyed in conversational language and attract an audience that's like high quality. Like it would need a YouTube video with the comment section where I could just read the comment section. So maybe the answer actually is one click that has to happen is you should vigorously moderate a comment section, maybe even hire a person like the philosopher should hire someone to moderate the comment section. And it, when people watch the video and then they go to the comment section, like this is the first good comment section I've ever seen on YouTube. I guess smart people watch this video. Okay, I'm gonna share this around. So that's one step. And the other step is again, um, like breaking the problem with the self-help frame. Ironically, I would say that maybe one should do self-help that is definitely not believed to be self-help. Like maybe that's like the moral optimum. Those are great points. I totally could see those points. I do think we as a society deeply need self-help because we're so atomized, often, we just need to do what we can do on our own. Arguably, even, you know, the meditation fad is self-help under a different brand, but somehow that brand is sleeker. You can pretend that you're seeking deep spiritual enlightenment rather than letting go of resentment over your boss's shitty management practices. Fascinating. Excellent. Well, Samo, there are so many questions I'd love to ask you, as is always the case with my best guests, but I want to make sure you have uh, a plenty of time to get to your next meetings or whatever, you, whatever else you have going on today. So I feel like I'm just going to cut myself off here. And I want to thank you so much for sharing all these insights. I have a lot of people in my audience who are, you know, genuine intellectuals in one way or another, but they're trying to find their own way outside of institutions. And there's, there was just so much here from your experience, but also from your more substantive theoretical ideas that I think uh, my audience will find very inspiring, but also informative and, and interesting. And so just all around, I'm very grateful for having you, Samo. This was excellent. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the show. Great questions. Absolutely. And I'll put uh, links to all of your work in the show notes. So if anyone wants to follow up with Samo or check out some of the things we talked about in the show, everyone can find those links in the show notes. And uh, Samo, thanks once again, and you're, you're free to go. I appreciate it.